This episode contains material that might be triggering for some. If you need to stop the podcast at any time to take care of yourself, please do so. If you need support, you can call the 24-7 National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Dialectical Behavior Therapy was created in the 1980s by Marsha Linehan in Seattle, Washington. Today, DBT is taught all over the world. We're two therapists who believe everyone can benefit from DBT skills. I'm Kate. I'm Michelle. And And this this is is DBT and Me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Q&A number 14. 14. Goodness gracious. Which is interesting. (laughs) Someday I'll have to see, like, on average, how, like, what that works out to per month or week, since we're at one year, which is 52 weeks. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I can't do math. That's as far (laughs) as I can get. Anyway, this is our 14th Q&A, and today... I think we're doing something we've never done before. Know, we just have a theme. A theme. A theme. <laughs> um, to the Q&A, which is all listener uh, questions related to being in a relationship with someone who has BPD. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's thematic. We figure it leads in to this coming Wednesday's episode, which will be part two of our two-part series on (laughs) uh on bpd right the first one was sort of if you have it and this coming one will be uh if someone you love has it so we figured these things paired well together we would just make it a week of dbt no yes always dbt bpd there you go all the acronyms oh my lord all right i'm gonna do great today (laughs) (laughs) yeah All right, Michelle, you read while I reconnoiter my brain. Okay, (laughs) sounds good. So this first one says, I'm in a relationship with a man who also shows a lot of signs of borderline personality disorder. We are together now for one and a half years, but in this time frame, he has ended our relationship four times and thrown me into a lot of really hurtful conflicts. After four years of therapy, I gained a lot of skills to deal with my BPD symptoms, but he has never been in therapy but he's looking for a counselor right now. While I know at least most of the time how to calm myself down and how to communicate my needs and emotions, he gets easily overwhelmed with his emotions. He does not yet know how to help himself with his emotions other than to verbally attack me when he feels threatened or to escape the situation by disappearing for a few days or ending the relationship. Then she says a parenthesis, I would say this, that his behavior is classic BPD splitting. This behavior occurs every few weeks and is extremely destabilizing and painful for me. One of his triggers is being criticized and seeing other people, me, in pain. His reactions make it difficult for me to tell him if something he did bothered me or to show him my true emotions when I'm really down or upset. I love him and I want to help him. How can I deal better with his behavior? My first impulse is to try to help him with his emotions, but it drains my energy and sets the focus on his problems only. I would love to distance myself from his verbal accusations and my urge to help him first instead of dealing with my own hurt. 
All right. Oh, yes. so much. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. I just realized in taking my notes that I kind of only responded to part of that. But we'll see if I can get there. The first thing I want to do, listener, is just validate the hell out of all that. Hmm. Um, I would say that one of the hardest things, uh, especially growing up, that I dealt with with my own mom who has BPD was a tendency to, if I said that something she'd done hurt me, was to then turn it around to how much she was hurt by knowing she had hurt me, which then turned it all around to be about her, right? And so I, I that sounds to me a lot like what you're describing your um, partner doing. And so I have a lot of empathy there. My second thought about how to, what did you say? You want to help him? Oh, you want to deal better with his behavior. Okay, cool. I read that wrong and thought, well, and heard it wrong since Michelle just <laughs> read it. That's saying, how do you help him with his behavior? I'm like, warning, warning, Will Robinson. But no, deal with his behavior. So I have a few DBT skills or a couple know a few that I would recommend in that regard. One of them just being check the facts, right? When you're the on the receiving end of, as you put it, uh, BPD splitting, it can be, as you said, really destabilizing and painful and hard to hold on to like who and how and what you really are. And so check the facts can really help with sort of grounding you in reality and in who you are um, in the midst of conflict. I would still really recommend stop the stop skill um, may not be very well received by him, but again, you got to focus on taking care of you. Right. Um, and sort of skipping to the end. But one of the things I said was that put your, uh, put on your own mask first, which actually has very different uh, connotations now with the pandemic. Um, <laughs> I'm in it like oxygen mask, <laughs> yep. like in airplanes. Right. Which is that, Right. By taking care of yourself, well, A, you deserve that and you need to focus on yourself. You're the one you can change. You're the one you can take the best care of, things like that. But also, whatever help you, it does feel appropriate or healthy to give him, you're in a much better space to do that if you've been taking care of your own self first. So it's both a selfish and a selfless sort of place to be coming from for why to take care of yourself first and foremost. Uh, that all being said, the other thing I think of just so much of the time is to self-soothe, right? When you're hurting, when you feel like you've been cut off, when you feel like you're being blamed for things, when, right, when there's just a lot of oh, emotional pain, I, I tend to want to turn people towards self-soothing with the five senses as just a, yeah, gentle way to take care of yourself because it sounds like a really hard situation to be navigating. Um, and also kudos to him and I'm happy for you that he's looking for a therapist just to put yeah. out that out there too. Cause hopefully, hopefully not immediately, but in some time he'll start to learn some of these skills that you've picked up in your years of working on yourself. And you guys can kind of be together in that struggle as opposed to in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Nice. I don't have any DBT skills to talk about in my response. <laughs> Kate, Kate talked about a, a, stole them. a few <laughs> a few lovely skills. Um, and when I was thinking of this, I wasn't thinking really in terms of DBT. I was just thinking kind of generally what, what may be helpful here. So something that I think is really important that does not get talked about enough in romantic relationships 
and this is regardless of whether one or both people have a diagnosis of BPD or neither people have a diagnosis of BPD. This is just something that in general I think can really help is that it's important for both of you to know how you fight. And what I mean by that is like when you're in an argument, when you're having conflict, when you're disagreeing, what does that look like for both of you? Uh, generally, people fall into one of two categories, though this can be much more nuanced than what I'm about to paint it out to be. But sometimes when conflict is going on, uh, one or both people really want to take space. They need time apart to cool down. They want to go distract themselves with something for a while before they revisit the conflict. Other people are more maybe external processors. They want to talk about it. They want to talk about it until it's resolved, that kind of a thing. And when two people in a relationship either have different or don't know how the other person prefers to argue and disagree, this is going to create miscommunication on top of arguments. And so one of the things, if he's open to having this conversation with you, might be for both of you to sit down when things are calm and mm -hmm. to just talk about like, how, what are both of our like likes and dislikes when it comes to conflict? Some of this may relate to what each of you saw in your households growing up as children. How did your parents fight? What did you see? What? <laughs> like Kate's, Kate's kind of making a face. Um, because I think in some households, right, the, those were catastrophic events. And you saw a lot of maybe unhealthy, toxic conflict. And to, you know, that can either lead to you potentially following in those footsteps or a lot of people who grew up in really like high conflict households, they will avoid it till the cows come home. Like at all costs, they will not. <laughs> get into an argument so right do both of you tend to bottle things and then it all comes out at once or just like how do each of you handle conflict what's your stories there because all of us have a history with this in some way shape or form and to just really be aware of what both of you would prefer when you guys are having a disagreement I think might help a little bit yeah kate <laughs> she's raising her hand know, you guys I, 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 I yeah i didn't think about it until you started talking but i think it dovetails in really well with what you're saying right now which is something that i coach a lot of my clients especially couples that i see in is to have what i call an, a conversational safe word mm -hmm. um which ideally gets utilized before the tipping point yeah, <laughs> like before either one of you is overwhelmed before the emotionality kind of goes crazy mm -hmm. um, is to have a word where if either one of you says it the conversation just stops no last word no when I'm done saying this no it just stops for a predetermined period of time mm -hmm. um, and this is one of the reasons I talk about this is a we're, we all are prone to saying dumb shit if we're sufficiently upset so yep. to try and prevent yourself from getting to a place where s significant repair is needed <laughs> it can be good to you know put a timeout essentially mm -hmm. um, on the conversation while you guys re-regulate uh, but the other thing I like about this is I think it um finds a nice middle ground for the two types of people that you're talking about, Michelle, because I absolutely yeah. talk to people about the same thing, about the two different kinds of conflict. Uh-huh. Or, or two kinds of ways people prefer to engage in conflict. Yeah. 
So, again, while, like Michelle said, when everyone's calm, when everyone's fine, when everything's copacetic, sit down and agree on what the safe word is, Mm -hmm. right? And then agree on how long that initial break will be, right? Five, honestly, I wouldn't say less than 10 minutes personally. No, that's not enough time. (laughs) Right? Yeah, somewhere between, like, 15 and 60, maybe, Mm -hmm. right? Like, depending. Um, But with, so the, the two things, the two sort of implicit or even explicit promises that come with this safe word are one, the fucking conversation stops. It actually stops, stop, stops, full stop, done stop, brick wall stop, stop, stop. Um, when someone says it. And then the other half of it is we will come back together mm-hmm. and continue talking. Right. Yep, so that if again. there's stuff that's unresolved, we can get to there. Maybe we have to repeat this several times. Maybe we come back together, talk for 10 minutes, things start to get overwhelming, we take another break. Right? <laughs> like, um, or maybe when you guys come back together after the agreed upon time, one person doesn't feel ready yet. And so mm-hmm. that person can say, hey, I don't feel ready yet. Can I have another? And then again, an explicit period of time. Right. I happen to be one of the talk it out people. My husband happens to be a space person. And so I'm really aware of how awkward it can feel when you are on opposite sides of that preference. Um, But this ideally gives the space person space while reassuring the talk it out together person that they're going to get a chance to do that, too. And in a place where they're more likely to actually get resolved because they're not flooded. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, conversational safe words for the win. Yeah, it's a no, really cool great idea, when Kate. it's done right. <laughs> yeah, because, um, yeah, I think I think a lot of this is just, um, you know, he, oh, man. Yeah, I mean, reading this, I just, I felt for you, listener, when it's like, yeah, he's broken up with me four times and just, you know, he has these triggers and these things and that and those things. I'm like, whoo, that's a, that's a lot. And also, I think it would really help if both of you have this conversation, is my hope. The purpose of this conversation is not to decrease disagreements. It's just so that when they happen, you both maybe know a little more of what to expect and are tuned in to what the other person needs, even if one or both of you may not always be able to perfectly give the other person what they want, you at least know. It's at least a step in that direction. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The other thing that felt important to say... I guess because of hearing you talk about, like, um, I'm actually going to scroll back up to see if I can read it. Oh, that he disappears for a few days or ends the relationship. Oh, yeah, that's that's really hard. Oh, and my recorder just fell down. <laughs> Oops. Um, so, right, that's a lot longer than the 60-minute break that Kate was just talking about. Yeah. And I think it's important for you to have a plan for yourself in place if and when he does that, that you have some kind of ideas already written down, some things at the ready that's like, yeah, if he takes off again, uh, this is my plan. You know, this is the friend I'm going to call and talk to. This is the self-soothing stuff I'm going to do, like Kate was saying. Um, these are places I enjoy going to. You can go somewhere. You know, whatever it is of like, <laughs> it's a create a plan for yourself so that while he's gone for however long he's going to be gone for, you're not just sitting there the whole time just waiting and wondering and consumed by thoughts of when is he coming back and that kind of a thing. It it makes sense that you're going to have an emotional response of some kind, of course. It's going to really hurt when he does this. And I think it would be really helpful if you don't maybe stay in that place for too long. And to be able to have some things that you can do at the ready to focus on you 
because you can't control how long he's going to stay gone. He's going to stay gone for as long as he decides to. And for you to take care of yourself during that time, um, I think is important. So, yeah, those are my thoughts. Yeah. I like it. All right, Kate, ready to read the next one? Yeah, sure. All right. Oh, also, I'll say with this one, we did we did edit this one down quite a bit, um, but we tried to capture the the main essence, essence? of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So it says, I know I need to lower my expectations as I am a very high achiever. I also realize how codependent I am with my daughter and am working to detach as carefully as possible so as to not traumatize her more. She is a 20... 20- seven-year-old adult child. My biggest issue with her is that she is totally financially dependent on her father and I. I know this is all our doing and fault. And she truly does not understand expenses and finances, nor what things really cost. Whenever we try and set a financial boundary, she goes to her go-to behavior of holding things over our head, many times with suicidality, or that she will cut us off totally. She knows that is not what we want. Apparently, we are in a drama triangle all the time. Our daughter, the victim, either her dad, myself, or her boyfriend, switch back and forth with the rescuer and persecutor. How do we, the parents, begin to stop the codependency, set boundaries slowly... Oh, sorry. Set boundaries slowly using what words? Because we always end up in a fight whenever money is involved. She tends to pull the victim card when she does not like the new rules. We are both nearing 60 and would like to slow it down and plan on working less, not more. We, of course, understand that her diagnosis of BPD, among among other diagnoses, make life more difficult. We will help but feel she just cannot get out of the I am the victim role. Any thoughts, ideas for us, her parents, to use skills in DBT to put together scripts to follow when she puts us in such an uncomfortable place is appreciated. Yeah. So there's a lot here. Um, The drama triangle actually is something, yeah, that we're going to talk about with our monthly episode on Wednesday. So I'm going to talk about that more in just a couple days when you guys tune in. But the thing that I'll say here is, you know, in this email, this listener says, you know, that she kind of goes back and forth between playing the rescuer and the persecutor listener i hate to say it but i think there might also be some victim going on here as well with um the position that you're in i i hear that a little bit in this email where it's like um and again this was edited down quite a bit so there were other points in the email too where this was apparent but basically this idea of like we're nearing 60 we want to slow down but we can't because of her you know, so we're the, we're the victims of her behavior. I, I, I just can't do what I want because of what she does kind of a thing. And I would just really encourage you, and I say this with compassion because the thing about the triangle is that we can easily play all three roles in very rapid succession, and they can be very slippery and very sneaky with how they show up. And I would just encourage you to notice that. If there's ever times where you're saying, I can't do blank because of her, that's you in the victim role (laughs) to some degree or another. Um, And so just something to notice. Um, I think you already have some great awareness of tuning into maybe how you might rescue her and how there might be some persecution going on as well. 
The other thing that's really important here when it comes to setting boundaries is that it's very important to not make empty threats. I used to say this all the time when it came to the parenting work that I used to do with people. Oh my gosh, people would make the most empty threats to their children all the time. Basically, you know, either you start behaving better or we're going to leave. Are you really? Most of the time they would not follow through on that because they didn't really want to go from wherever it was, right? Don't say things you cannot follow through on. Do not make empty threats. A lot of times what people do, just totally natural, but you'll say like a lot of people, a lot of times people will say the biggest threat they can think of and they hope that that's going to scare the child enough that they're going to be like, oh, well, I don't want that to happen. I better shape up. And then when it, the, when it doesn't <laughs> happen, when the threat doesn't happen and they don't shape up, then they're like, ha ha, called your bluff, essentially. Yeah. So it's really important, no matter how old that child is, in this case, she's an adult, but it's very important that if you're setting boundaries with her, set boundaries you can actually keep. So that's something that's really important to notice. The other thing I would say, because you mentioned how she threatened suicidality, so I really want to validate there how scary that can be for mm-hmm. anybody, for anybody in any relationship, and especially for parents when it is their child saying that. That is scary to hear. I, yeah, that's really hard. And so I don't want to have it be that you don't take those threats seriously. I think it is important to take those threats seriously while also not having it be that she gets the thing she wants the moment she says, like, if I don't get this, I'm going to kill myself. That's not going to be the answer. So just some really basic stuff here about um, suicidal threats and assessing for suicidality and all of that. It's really important to ask some specific questions or to try to gather some information. So I don't want to go too in-depth with this, but it also feels important. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the first thing is to try to figure out if the person has a plan to, to kill themselves. Do they have, you know, medication that they plan to overdose on or that kind of a thing? Do they have a plan? If the answer is yes, do they have the means to carry out such plan? So sometimes people will say an idea for how they want to kill themselves, but they won't at that current moment have the means to do so. They may say something like, I plan to shoot myself, but let's say they don't own a gun. Well, then that lowers the risk greatly, especially if they don't have plans to get a gun from anyone immediately or that kind of a thing. They have an idea. They don't have the means to carry out that idea, for example. So checking in if she does have a plan, what her means are for that plan. If she does have the means for that plan, then a lot of this becomes about reducing the means, taking away the medication, taking away the gun, making sure that she can't access those means would be important. The other thing that's important to try to get a gauge on is if there's a time frame. Some people have a very specific date in mind for when they might plan to attempt suicide. Some people, they have no idea when they plan to do it. Some people are like, I want to do that tonight. It it can really vary. And it's important to get a sense of that as well, of how immediate is this? Is this going to happen soon? Is this something that even if she 
has a plan and that kind of a thing? Does she not really have an intention of when to act on that plan? So these are important questions to ask. And really, truly, if all of those things are checking out, right? If she has a plan, she has the means, she it's hard to restrict those means or you're not able to restrict those means. And she has an intention of when she plans to do this. That's when you want to be calling a crisis line or calling 911. Um, Kate and I list a crisis number. We'll have it at the beginning of this episode. So calling a crisis line, calling 911, and taking those threats seriously if all of those things are in place. If not all of those things are in place, there might be a way to keep her safe. It doesn't mean not taking it seriously. It just means that the chances of her acting on what she is saying she's going to do, those chances go down. If she doesn't have a plan, if she doesn't have the means, if she doesn't have intentionality for when she'll do it. So those are just things to ask and to investigate a little bit when she says things like that. Um, and then I guess the last thing I'll say, I feel like I have a lot to say in response to this listener, but um, it's super important. You mention her dad, yourself, and her boyfriend going back and forth with the different roles within the triangle. Um, it's so important that all of you be on the same page if change is going to happen. So when it comes to setting those boundaries, you all have to decide what the boundary is going to be. It has to be realistic for all of you to uphold that boundary. Because if even one person is playing the role of the rescuer at any given time, it's going to crumble. And the boundaries won't hold up. So it's really important that if you're going to set boundaries with her in some way, that all of you know what those boundaries are going to be. That's really, really, truly essential there as well. And that if somebody goes back on the boundaries, you guys talk about it without shaming that person because it's really hard to uphold boundaries sometimes. But just being like, all right, do we need to change our plan here a little bit and make adjustments so that we're still trying to set a boundary, but maybe we need to set a different boundary and that kind of thing. So, okay, I'm going to stop talking and turn it to Kate. (laughs) Well, it's funny. I was like, oh, you know what? I'll just let you be the loquacious one here um, on this one. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I have, I echo pretty much everything that you said. I think those are really great things to check in on, especially the don't make empty threats one. I think that's a huge thing. Just about any kind of boundaries, but including, I would say, a little bit around the suicidality too, right? Like, hey, we're going to take this seriously and taking this seriously is going to look like this. Mm-hmm. And then... You have to do that thing. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Whatever that thing is. Up to and including calling. Yeah, calling 911 or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's a thing. But to, let's see, we'll do DBT. And yeah, then Kate's going to bring in some DBT, DBT stuff because nothing I said had anything to do with DBT. <laughs> <laughs> well, so when I, saw, I saw the, like, script, right? Like, put together scripts. The very mm-hmm. first thing that I think mm-hmm. about for interpersonal interactions and scripts is Dear Man. Yeah. Right. Dear man is, you know, how to ask for things you want. It can also be used to say no or set boundaries. Right. And it's such a lovely scaffolding on which to build a communication like that. And so I think that dear man can be incredibly helpful for conversations like that, for interactions like that uh, in that regard. And also to an extent fast. Right. You don't 
have reason to apologize for, you know, having to set financial boundaries. You don't need to apologize for it, right? I mean, there's a lot in FAST, but I think the no apologies is often the thing that's both the hardest and the most useful. <laughs> yeah. Um, right? So Dear Man and FAST would be the two skills that I would go to for your actual direct interactions with her. Um, the non-DBT-related thing that I want to say is have... Mm, try try coming at the subject from a place of curiosity. Curiosity is wonderfully disarming of defensiveness, right? Now, you know, she's your 27-year-old daughter, so you have 27 years of interactions. You probably think you know her pretty well, and you're probably right. <laughs> but also, no matter how well we know a person, we're not psychic, right? We're not mind readers. We can't know what's going on for them or in their minds, etc. Um, in that regard, so instead of being instead of making a bunch of statements or just I don't know, coming at it from like a on high right authoritarian kind of space, try coming at some of them with curiosity, like. Like, do you know what's, do you know, like, how, where are you coming from here? What are your thought processes? How are you feeling? Why is this thing important to you, right? Like, questions, but questions with actual curiosity. So you do have to work really hard on where you are emotionally before engaging in that kind of stuff. Because, I don't know, for instance, the question, why is this so important to you, can be like, yeah, can you tell me why is this so important to you? right? Like curious and warm. You can also be like, why is this so important to you? Right? Same words, not the same question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right? So also looking out for just where you are when you're coming into that. And yeah, I would say that, that curiosity might lead to better, has a higher chance of leading to better interactions um, with maybe a little bit less of that drama than you're used to experiencing. Nice. Yeah. Okay. On to the next one. Um, so this one uh, came from a therapist, as they mentioned in their comment. <laughs> so they say, something I've been really thinking about a lot from a therapist perspective is the shaming associated with the diagnosis. So the diagnosis meaning BPD. I guess I'm wondering how to best work with families who have an adult or teen child with the diagnosis without imposing shame or blame on anyone. I like this. Uh, my my first response to Michelle and how I have it written out here is just neuroscience with an exclamation point. Um, right? Uh, I remember when? Well, that was just that was just last month's monthly episode. Mm -hmm. um, right? We talk a lot about you know more in depth about the neuroscience behind BPD. Um, as a therapist, you know, depending on how much you focus on it, you listener might have an idea there. But on average, I think that it takes a lot of the idea of shame or blame away to just be like, hey, some folks are born with a more active limbic system. Shit happens. Right? Like, nobody's, <laughs> nobody's to blame. No one needs to feel shame about this. It just happens for some folks. So let's meet it where it is. Right? So I, I would lean into the neuroscience first as a way to, I don't know, to avoid the idea of imposing shame or blame on someone. Um, so that's the first thing I think of. And the second thing I think of, oddly enough, is, I don't know, <laughs> if you were to do it. All right, yes, 
cool, let's shame or blame people. You're, you feel shame or blame about your child having this diagnosis. Awesome. But like, you, you in this case being the parents, uh, <laughs> you, uh, you're the parents you are and the people you are in large part because of how you were parented. So if your parenting is to blame for your child's diagnosis, well, then maybe actually your parents, right? They're, the child's grandparents are actually to blame for this because they help turn you into the parents you are. And then you could go back again and you can go back again. And you can go back again, right? Because everything has a cause, right? There's a causal chain leading back indefinitely to how we got to this moment in time. Right? And so it's just useless. You could throw around blame, but anything you blame has a thing that caused it, and that has a thing that caused it, and that has a thing that caused it. And you just go back. Right? So the, the two, I would, you know, the neuroscience for taking blame away and just maybe, you know, explaining that idea of causal chains to the parents if they feel really attached to blaming themselves or feeling shame around it. Um, yeah, of a, well, sure, I guess, but where do we stop, right? Mm -hmm. Everything has a cause, including all of the behaviors you're wanting to blame yourself for. So instead of doing that and chasing ourselves back off into our, you know, ancestry, uh, let's just be where we are and handle what is right now. Mm -hmm. So those are, those are the two things that I think about. What about you, Michelle? Yeah, I like that. I think it's great that you bring back in the neuroscience stuff that we talked about from our first BPD episode because, you know, in that episode, we kind of talked about how there's a couple different ways to view, like, what causes BPD? Like, mm -hmm. what leads to someone getting this diagnosis? And probably, you know, I talked in that episode about complex PTSD and how that can really be related to someone receiving a BPD diagnosis. And my guess is for this therapist that maybe that's what they've heard too. If kids have a BPD diagnosis, it's because there's some stuff going on at home or yeah, it's just some, some, some complex PTSD stuff with, a, which a lot of times really does originate within our families of origin. So, mm -hmm. I, I get it. That that's kind of what this therapist is wanting to avoid putting out there, perhaps, because that could feel really shaming and blaming. So I guess the way that I think about this is twofold. First is that everyone has a chance to get help. And second, everyone is doing their best. So with the everyone has a chance to get help, what I mean by that is that in my practice, I work with adults only. I don't work with teens and I don't work with kids. And I with my adult clients that I work with, I have some adult clients who are diagnosed with BPD who are parents and where their parents had a BPD diagnosis. So kind of like what Kate's talking about, right? This can be very mm -hmm. intergenerational. But also I have these clients who are in therapy with me really wanting to work on themselves, really getting curious about their own mental health and what they can do differently in their lives to have a positive impact on their children. Um, and just noticing how, again, like, yeah, like they were impacted by their parenting and stuff like that. So I just view it this way as like, um, every, everyone has a chance to get help. I mean, luckily if you're working with, a, a teen child with the diagnosis, they're getting that help earlier. Sometimes that adult child gets that help later, but that hopefully 
there is, you know, there's an opportunity for therapy that can be explored and that that can do a lot of healing for the loved ones of someone with BPD or the person with BPD themselves. So help is there. So when these parents are like, oh my God, did I cause this for my child? You know, hey, maybe, sounds bad. Maybe Maybe. you did. And you can get help. (laughs) (laughs) If if that applies, if that's the case, is that they can get, they can get help, um, hopefully, and get some healing going there. With the second piece of everyone is doing their best, the, uh, the adult, uh, well, yeah, an adult or teen child with the diagnosis, they are doing their best. The family members are doing their best. Everyone's just trying to come to grips with this diagnosis in the best way that, ca- that they can. There are going to be hard, difficult, challenging days with this. And it's important to remember that everyone's doing their best, especially when, like, this therapist mentions, like, I'm wondering how to best work with families. So that's multiple people wanting to be involved here. Everyone's doing their best by showing up to get that help and by trying to make improvements. So I would really frame it from a really positive perspective of, like, the fact that you guys are here says a lot. Because <laughs> it, it really, really actually genuinely does. The mm-hmm. other thing that can be helpful, too, I think, for parents when they have a child diagnosed with BPD is getting into, I don't even remember the name. There's a certain name for like DBT programs that are meant for the loved ones. They do exist so that you can learn the skills Hmm. to help your, um, in this case, right, like your child who's diagnosed with BPD, but these could be great things for you as well. There are some places where they do the program concurrently, right? So the teen child goes off to DBT group and the parent goes off to their group. And they're both learning at the same time. So there are opportunities out there for that as well. If these parents are really feeling a lot of shame is that they get a chance to be involved. They get a chance to learn and they get a chance to grow. And I mean, nobody is a perfect parent. So whether your child is diagnosed with BPD or something else or even not diagnosed with anything, guess what? You're still not a perfect parent no matter what. So I think normalizing that as well of like, regardless of what diagnosis your kid has, chances are there are some things that you could do better at because everyone always has space to grow, really. And there's some things that you're probably already doing pretty awesome at. And really viewing that as a dialectic there rather than just like, oh, because your child has this diagnosis, it must be because of something you did to cause it. Absolutely not the case. (laughs) Um, And that, yeah, there's just opportunities to get better and to learn that's what i think no what a lovely hopeful note (laughs) thanks all right i think last one last one okay let's see uh it says in general how do you live with someone with emotion with emotion dysregulation especially when these huge emotions lead to suicidality or to shutting you out because you've been put into the all bad category this one's tough There's Uh a lot of different components there that are really important. For the first part there of how do you live with someone with emotion dysregulation? Pardon. I think this can apply whether or not that person has a BPD diagnosis, though admittedly probably even more important when someone that you're living with has a BPD diagnosis to think about. (laughs) The thing that I wrote down is like that it's really important to have mindfulness of yourself. Like 
on level 10, like <laughs> mindfulness of yourself. I almost even have this image come to mind for me of like a tree. Like if you're the tree and then there's just like this huge windstorm blowing around you. Mm. How can you have it be that you're still rooted? You're still grounded. Sure. Your branches might be fraying to and f- to and fro and that kind of a thing. And yet you are still centered. And I think that's what's really hard is that when the people around us are emotionally dysregulated to remember that we do not have to become dysregulated with them. And it, and it is hard. I mean, we're hardwired as human beings to pick up on the emotions of people around us and to be sensitive to that. So this is difficult. And also, if you are sensing that someone in your household is really emotionally dysregulated... What can you bring to mind for yourself or what can you tell yourself to really be in a mindful, centered place? And that doesn't mean like you have to go sit with your eyes closed and do (laughs) yoga or whatever. Like it doesn't have to look like that. You might still be going about and doing the things that you're doing. Just how can you do it in a mindful way? How can you tune into your own experience? What's in the here and now? Because my guess is, chances are, your brain is probably wandering away to how bad is this going to get or wandering away to the other person's experience and just bringing it back to mindfulness of you, I think is really important. Um, I talked about this already quite in depth with a future question, but with the, um, would these huge emotions lead to suicidality? Just echoing everything that I already said about how to assess for that and how to have a plan for that. So, right, checking in about plan means intention of when they plan to do that and trying to restrict the means if you can, calling 911 or a crisis line if you can't. Take, take those threats and concerns seriously if those boxes are being checked to make sure that person can stay safe. And then when you said um, shutting you out because you've been put into the all bad category, I'm just like, okay, so when you're put into the all bad category, what can you do? And the DBT skill that came up for me a little bit was the skill of ABC. I think especially the A and the B. Um, So the A is right, the accumulating positive, positive emotions. So that can look like long-term with thinking about your values. That can look like short-term with pleasant events. And then the B is the build mastery. So doing things that you already feel competent in and kind of um, having, and it, it can look like doing things you're already competent in or like having something that you're learning and putting time and energy into that. So I think when we do these things, the hope is that it can really help you just feel a little bit better about yourself. When somebody else is viewing you in a really bad light is that you can have some things at your disposal where it's like, well, when I do this thing that helps me build mastery, I feel really awesome because I already know that I'm good at this thing. So this makes me feel really good when I do this thing that I like and enjoy or I have these pleasant events that I do. Just something to take care of yourself when they're viewing you through that lens, I think is important. I like okay. it. Your turn, Kate. Also, I feel like a little bit of a dick, but I didn't realize it until you were saying it. ABC, right? That's the skill. Uh-huh. Is also the letters for the all bad category. Ooh, acronyms everywhere. <laughs> Easy way to remember ABC it, listener. when you're in the ABC. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All that category. Sorry. Mm-mm. All right. Sorry. Um, oh, man. I think I say this a lot, probably. 
but it's genuine every time. Uh, I have so much empathy uh, for this listener. I have been there uh, personally, um, mostly with my mom. When you when you said that, put into the all bad category, like my heart just went oof. Mm. Um, yeah, I have had that experience. So just a giant dose of validation for how hard that is. Um, what a struggle it can be. Just how personally devastating it can feel. Blah. So yeah, the first thing I want to say is, is not in any way guidance, but just a, I feel with you and I'm sorry. I've been there. It sucks. Now, actual skill-wise, uh, amusingly enough, I'm the one with no DBT skills this time. I actually put um, one into that answer. I think it's the you only did. skill I referenced the entire Q&A, but there it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we go at least one to every question. I feel like that yeah. counts. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I. so I. the first thing I think about is differentiation, but really tender differentiation. And when I... That tenderness, I mean to be towards both you and the person with emotion dysregulation, right? Differentiation inherently isn't isn't coldness, isn't detachment, isn't um, aloofness, but it can look like that depending on how you're executing it. And so when I say tender differentiation, what I, I guess I mean by that is, yeah, very much what Michelle was talking about with the mindfulness of yourself, right? Being rooted in yourself, right? This is me and that is them. And I know who I am and what my experience is. And they're having their own experience over there, right? But doing it in a way where you're, A, being tender with yourself for how hard that is and for whatever your experience is in that moment. Uh, but also, you know, not cold towards that other person, Right. I don't, I don't know enough about what your person says to come up with a really great example, but just uh, some, some probably nicer than this sounds form of like that, that reminding them that that's their experience, right? Like this is what I, how I'm experiencing things. And that's how it seems like you're experiencing things. And those things are different, but that's, you know, that's okay. Right. Something that, that just is that, reminder to yourself and maybe to that other person um, about the fact that you are different people with different experiences and different yeah, uh, ways of moving through the world. Or even if it doesn't feel safe, uh, you don't feel able to say any of that externally, at least doing that for yourself. Right? Reminding yourself, this is a separate person. We have separate experiences. Whatever category they put me in doesn't mean I'm that person. I'm me. I know who I am mm -hmm. and who I am doesn't change that rapidly or severely. So it can't possibly be true that sometimes I'm an entirely awesome human being. And sometimes I am an all bad human being <laughs> like that's not possible. So what is real? Mm -hmm. Right. And just having that differentiation for yourself. Um, I put this as a separate thing, but I think in a, to an extent, it's wrapped up in the tender differentiation thing, which is just self-compassion. Um, there can be this, I don't know, so many things. There can be normalization, if there's something that you go through all the time that ends up to you kind of downplaying it. 
There can be even internally a sense that you need to defend or protect the person who's treating you this way. So you don't want to lean into how bad or hard or painful or hurtful it is. Like there can be all sorts of reasons that we might minimize our experience or just try and, I don't know, forge ahead without really looking at it. Right? So just a reminder that, I don't know, to be nice to yourself. You know, to own your experience, but not in a just take responsibility, own it kind of way, but in a, yeah, no, that really is my experience. I don't need to alter it or downplay it for the sake of, I don't know, propriety or for the sake of this other person. Like, this is how I'm feeling. This is my experience. And I get to be compassionate towards that uh, for what it really is. Um, so, yeah, those are the things that I think about for how to handle that. And just, yeah, no, no I'm sorry human yeah it's hard yeah and that brings us to the end i i guess one final thought that i just want to have which actually builds on pretty nicely to what you're saying about self-compassion kate is that i don't remember when but in what episode we talked about the idea of a well at least one episode we've talked about the idea of a self-compassion break you know this Mm -hmm. is a moment of suffering yeah suffer just as i am suffering may i be kind to myself and what i hope in us just reading a couple of these today is that this maybe shows to those of you listening who do have a loved one with a BPD diagnosis, you know, you are not the only one who may have some hard experiences at times with that loved one. Uh, you know, there's commonalities, right? Yeah, there's commonalities. There are things that you are likely feeling emotionally that other people are feeling emotionally as well. So you're just, you're, you're not alone for maybe what little bit of comfort that brings. I hope, um, is that there are others out there in the same boat with you and that, you know, hopefully it can be a thing where you're able to find some support somewhere from other people in that same boat if you need it so yeah okay Okay. thanks excuse me so last but not least huh oh last but not least what now oh i was just gonna say the email (laughs) (laughs) um yeah if you have questions you want us to answer on a future q a episode email us at dbtandmepodcast at gmail.com or post questions in the Facebook group. And I think I said this in our last q and I'm going to say this again. We already have... <laughs> yeah, it's going to take us a little while. We have our next Q&As already fully booked. But we're going to get to your question. Um, it will happen. Just be patient with us <laughs> while we work through other listener questions that have come before. But we would love to hear yours as well. So reach out to us if you like. Okay, I think that's it. All right. All right. Thank you, everyone. (laughs) Bye. Bye. To learn more about us and the DBT skills we're teaching each week, join our Facebook group. Simply log in to your Facebook profile and search for DBT and Me Podcast.